You can open your Bibles to John 6. John 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, with you this morning, uh, Justin will help us out with Scripture on the screen as well. We're going we're gonna to deal with a lot of Scripture this morning. Somewhat more of a theological sermon. So I hope you can follow along. We've been in John 6. In John 6, we find Jesus giving what is commonly called his bread of life discourse. What you find when you get down around verse 50, somewhere around there, you find that Jesus is actually giving this discourse in a synagogue. He's talking to Jewish uh, men and women in Galilee. And during this discourse, he presents himself as the bread of life. By the end of his discourse, many people are going to be angered with him because he gives them some difficult truths. If you would have eternal life, you must feed upon me, he says. It's a hard metaphor for people to get. He says, feed on my flesh, drink my blood. Weird imagery, difficult imagery. And so down in John 6.66, you have some of his disciples who actually abandon him. So we say that what we do with this passage really matters because he presented these truths and some believed and some deserted him. So that kind of gives us a mandate as a church. Learn what he's teaching in John 6 and decide what you're going to do with it. Some followed, some abandoned. And so what are we going to do? We have seen thus far, and we're going to read verse 27 down to verse 58 in just a minute. We've seen thus far in Jesus' bread of life discourse. Certain themes that have cropped up. You see patterns. We saw last time, or a couple weeks ago, Jesus' emphasis on the Father. Remember? And we said two things. We said, Jesus wants us to know that the Father has sent Jesus to us. Really, the Father has given Jesus to us. And then we saw another truth that some people might find quite difficult, but Jesus wants to emphasize it. Not only has the Father given Jesus to us, but the Father has actually given us to Jesus. So that's very clear in John 6. We also saw a few weeks ago the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus has thousands of men and women sit down on grass, and he performs a miracle with the bread and the loaves, and he feeds them all at the same time with lots left over, and he's teaching them, listen, we all have a common need. And there's no use trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in the earthly and temporary. Instead, true satisfaction that actually fulfills our need comes through Him who gives spiritual life. And remember that in this context, it's within this context that Jesus begins to present Himself uh, within that metaphor, again, of bread. Bread. His audience wanted physical bread for temporary satisfaction, and so he uses the occasion to present himself as the eternal and spiritual bread that brings true satisfaction. Well, we're going to continue, and we're going to focus on a related theme this morning. And you might say, well, this seems really basic. Okay, some of you it may be, but I think it's probably essential that we do this for some others. We simply want to look at this theme of eternal life, eternal life. So as we read verse 27 through 58, I want you to look for that theme, okay? Starting verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. 
Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may believe, uh, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As as it is written, he gave them uh, bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that, the, uh, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so I hope you caught the emphasis throughout Jesus' discourse here on life. Verse 27 speaks of food that endures to eternal life. Verse 33 speaks of Jesus who came down from heaven to give life to the world. Verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Verse 40, we see that those who look and believe on the Son will receive eternal life. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 53 says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread of the fathers that the fathers ate. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's clear that Christ is teaching about eternal life. The fact is, Jesus Christ came to bring life. And what kind of life? Eternal life. And so this morning, we simply want to consider a few things. What is eternal life? Why is eternal life necessary? How is it that Christ brought eternal life? And how can one be sure that they have eternal life? That's what we want to do this morning. So first of all, let's define eternal life. I think what we're going to see this morning is that many of us are operating under some misconceptions or maybe at least an incomplete understanding about what eternal life is. For many of us, we think of eternal life and we just think of life as we know it and just simply attach eternal to it. It's life as we understand it, but it goes on forever. Well, that's not, in fact, what the Bible teaches about eternal life. Eternal life speaks more to the quality of life than the quantity of life, as we'll see. That is, eternal life is a life wholly different from the life that we are living now. When the Jews considered eternal life, they thought of eternal life as the life of the age to come. The kingdom that will come, the age that will come, uh, eternal life is to be a possessor of that life, to be part of that coming kingdom. We see this reflected in the only Old Testament passage that speaks of everlasting or eternal life in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel says in his prophecy regarding the end times, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so according to Daniel, in the end, some will be resurrected to, what does he say? Everlasting life. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel described that eternal state as a kingdom established by God to remain forever. He said in Daniel 2.44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is what Daniel's looking forward to. This is what the Jews came to look forward to the time of a kingdom established by God that would endure forever, and eternal life was to have a part in that kingdom. It was the longing of every faithful Jew to know that they had a part in that eternal kingdom. For these faithful men and women, this longing would only be intensified uh, as they considered how the kingdoms of the world And even their personal experience fell far short of the promises of that age to come. Does that sound familiar? Right? I mean, we pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have that same longing. The kingdoms of this age continually uh, fall into rebellion. This is the Jewish experience as well. The kingdoms of their age continually fell into rebellion against God and became subject to his judgment. In fact, when Daniel's writing this, he's writing to Jews who are in captivity in Babylon as a consequence of the rebellion. And so the history of Israel and the personal experience of every 
Israelite testified to the reality that mankind was in a sad state, incapable of rectifying uh, their situation. Although God had given them grand promises of a kingdom uh, in which He would be their God, and they would be His people, and they would have relationship with Him, although those promises were there, they continually rebelled. They continually rebelled against God and even forfeited that promised arrangement. But why was that the case? Why was it that that kingdom didn't come on earth? Why is it that they truly didn't experience all the blessings of relationship with a God who sought to make covenant with them? Well, yeah, okay, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. It says, And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed, And out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There God creates a scenario where he places Adam and Eve in the garden and he says, here are two choices. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, don't eat from it. And the tree of life. And what does he say? The day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And so he places before Adam and Eve a choice between life and death. And what happens? Well, we understand what happens. Adam and Eve in the garden make the wrong choice. They choose disobedience. They choose rebellion against God. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. uh, And that act of disobedience would have uh, severe repercussions. God said, when you eat of that, you'll surely die, Genesis 2.17. In that moment, their disobedience consigned them to death. But beyond that, it consigned all of humanity to death. Prior to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, they lived in harmony with God. Prior to their sin, they had relationship with their God. They lived in harmony with one another. They lived in harmony with all of creation. But subsequent to the rebellion, they became alienated from one another. They became alienated from creation. And worst of all, they become alienated from God himself. They became severed from the life of God. That's what God meant. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Since Adam was the representative head of all of mankind, his rebellion in the garden then had repercussions or reverberations that spread over all of humanity. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All of humanity in their natural state severed from the life of God. Romans 5.19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so the pages of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 onward testify to the fact that mankind has fallen. As God would later say after the flood, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's the nature of mankind. The death which Adam chose in the garden spread across all of humanity so that all are severed from the life of God. Mankind in his natural state is separated from God, subject to his judgment. And so the Bible describes humanity's condition as what? Being lost? Walking in darkness? Being blind? And of course, being dead. Everyone born into this world is born separated from the life of God and in need of reconciliation to Him. However, after Adam and Eve's rebellion, God was merciful. He withheld His judgment against sinful humanity. 
He chose a people to be his own. He made gracious covenants with them and promised a day when he would make a way for them to escape death and to partake of that divine nature once again. That's the promise we saw in Daniel 12. So when Jesus finally came, he came to bring that very life to men. When Jesus Christ came, he came to reconcile humanity to God from whom they had been severed. John chapter 1, verse 4 says of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When Jesus came, it was like dawn breaking in perpetual darkness. Light had come to drive away the darkness. Life had come to finally overcome death. Matthew described Jesus' birth this way in Matthew 4. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadows of death on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of humanity dwelling in the shadow of death, but Jesus came bringing the light of life. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And notice also, we saw in Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus immediately followed talk of light and life with talk of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, for the Jews, eternal life was synonymous with the life of the age to come. And so Jesus is saying that that age has dawned. The age of life has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The age of life was dawning and repentance was required to enter into that kingdom. And so after thousands of years of death and darkness, the time had come for God to provide the means by which humanity could be perfectly reconciled to him and to once again become partakers of the divine nature. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, John says in his first letter, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In God's love, he sent Jesus into the world and he sends him to bring life so that those who are destined to perish might live. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So to summarize, eternal life is the very life of God. The life from which mankind in his natural state is severed. The Jews look forward to the day when God's kingdom would dawn and his people might enter it, thus inheriting everlasting life. They look forward to the day when they would dwell in constant communion with their God while sharing in his divine nature. When Jesus came, he came not only possessing this life from the Father, but also, listen, possessing the authority to give that life to whomever the Father chose. He prays in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Adam plunges all of humanity into sin and death, severing that relationship from God Uh, rendering them spiritually dead. Jesus Christ then comes with life in himself and the authority to give life to whomever the Father chooses. So then when Jesus came, he came with an invitation. 
Why? Because he was the one whom the Father had ordained to be the giver of life. Remember we learned in John 6, he says that it's upon him whom the Father has set his seal. He's the one who has life and the authority to give it. John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we see the necessity of eternal life. The natural state of man, severed from the life of God, spiritually dead, he needs life. We've seen that Jesus is the only source of that eternal life. And we've started to consider the nature of eternal life. But for the remainder of our time, for lack of a better word, we kind of want to consider the benefits of eternal life. When we talk about eternal life, which Jesus came to bring, we've already touched on it, but the first thing we want to explore is the fact that it includes what we're going to call intimate communion. Intimate communion. It may be surprising for you to learn that part of our definition or our biblical understanding of eternal life includes that of simply knowing God. Returning to Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And listen, he says, and this is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? Here it is. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Christ himself gives us a definition of eternal life. What does he say? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowledge of God. This speaks of what? Relationship. If you're familiar with Scripture, you understand that that idea of knowledge or knowing speaks of relationship. More than that, it speaks of intimate relationship. John repeats this notion in his first letter in 1 John 5. It says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. For what purpose? So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus Christ has come with authority. Authority to grant men and women what? Eternal life, but also that authority to enter into a reconciled and intimate relationship with God in which they actually share in the life of the Father. This eternal life is a matter of actually having fellowship with God. I mean, this is, this is undoing the consequences of Adam's sin. Remember that Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God in unbroken fellowship and communion. When they sinned, that was severed and that was broken. When Christ came, he says, I've come with life so that you can be restored to that relationship with God. Eternal life is a matter of having intimate communion with God himself. John again said in his first letter, 1 John 1, says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm writing so that you can know that you have life. Jesus Christ walked this earth and we saw eternal life. 
when we testify to that eternal life. And what's the consequence of you having that eternal life is you actually have fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. And consequently, then you have fellowship with us and all others who have fellowship uh, with the Father and the Son. So eternal life is not just, oh, we're going to live forever. That's not the biblical conception of eternal life, though that's part of it, sure. But to have eternal life is actually to have communion with God Himself. It means that we share in the life of God, to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. It is to know God. Again, far more than simply living forever. This is a matter of intimate communion. It's a matter of personal relationship. That's why Jesus could say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, uh, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying what? Because I am the life, you can come to the Father. Since Jesus was the life, he could bring us to God. He could usher us into relationship with him. He could bring us into intimate communion with him. So then, when we think about eternal life, we shouldn't fall prey to the idea that it's only about life after death, but we actually experience eternal life here and now. Remember what we learned last time? It's the Father who has given Jesus to us, and it's the Father who gives us to Jesus. The Father has drawn us to himself through Jesus. For what purpose? So that we can have a relationship with him. Jesus came to make the Father known. He came so that you might have a relationship with God. So a few questions this morning. We'll get to the questions in a minute. The fact is we came so that we might have relationship. He came so that we might have relationship with God. We are accepted by God because we have his life in us. Our prayers are heard by the Father because we have his life in us. We can confess our sins to God because we have his life in us. We can rely upon the Father for our daily provision because we have his life in us. We can be confident that he loves us and works all things for our good because we have his life in us. We can come boldly to him in times of need because we have his life in us. The point is, eternal life has brought us into relationship with him. It's all possible because Christ has given us eternal life. He's brought us into the very life of God so that we might know him. Next of all, not only does eternal life mean that we have intimate communion, but eternal life means in the here and now that we ought to have continual satisfaction. Continual satisfaction. Remember in John 6 context? I know that we're not doing a straight-up exposition this morning with John 6. Uh, It's more topical, but still couched here in this bread of life discourse. Remember what Jesus said of himself in John 6, 48? The whole theme here, he says, I am the bread of life. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What's he saying? Stop trying to find satisfaction in things that are temporary and earthly. That's what he's saying. Come to me to find true, genuine satisfaction. Understand that so much of sin in your life is you simply trying to cope with the human condition. So much sin in your life and my life is trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in something outside of Christ. Jesus is saying, stop it. I'm the bread. Come and feed upon me. True joy and true satisfaction comes when one's soul is reconciled to God. Everything else can be falling apart all around us, but if one knows that they're right with their creator, well, they can continually be satisfied. The metaphors of hungering and thirsting in John 6 are meant to speak to our shared human condition. 
always feeling empty, always feeling like we need more, always looking for the next thing to satisfy. Well, Jesus says in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Continual satisfaction. We learn something else very important about eternal life here. Not only is eternal life something we possess in the here and now, but it's something that is continually sustained by Jesus. Look in verse 53 of John 6. So Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we'll explain that in a minute, and uh, you'll have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And notice the terminology there. He says uh, in verse 54 and 56 and 57 and 58, he uses the term feeds, feeds, feeds. And then in verse 56, he uses the word abides. He's communicating the same thing. He's saying that in order to have the sustained eternal life, you must continually depend upon me. You must continually remain within me. Jesus is the living bread, and our spiritual life is sustained by continually feeding upon him as that bread. And notice in verse 56, he uses that word abide, which reminds us of what? Well, John 15. John 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. And in that context, he uses a different metaphor, not bread, but he uses the metaphor of a vine and branches. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Continually feed upon me. That's the idea. This speaks of an ongoing, sustained, continually maintained dependence upon Jesus as the source of spiritual life and satisfaction. And so as believers this morning, we are fully dependent upon Jesus for life. Like a branch must be attached to vine in order to maintain that flow of life. So we are in Christ and completely dependent upon him as the source of eternal life. So, how are you doing this morning when it comes to feeding on Jesus? Do you live every day as one who's aware that you're fully dependent upon him for spiritual life? This is why it's important to get this definition right. If you think eternal life is simply, oh, I prayed a prayer prayer once in my life, and at that point, I just sealed up my eternal destiny. And so now, because of something I did in the past, I have a guarantee of something in the future. What Christ is saying is, no, what following me looks like and what eternal life looks like is a continual day-by-day dependence upon me for spiritual life. So how are you doing? Feeding on Jesus. Do you pray like one who's aware? that you're continually dependent upon him? Do you read the word as if you're one who's continually in need of spiritual guidance? Do you face the anxieties of life like one who understands you have an intimate relationship with God who cares for you, and so you can cast your burdens upon him? 
Do you face daily temptation like one uh, who needs and has access to spiritual strength and protection through Jesus? Do you live like one who understands that true satisfaction can't be found in the things of this world? Do you live like one who draws continual satisfaction from Jesus and the and uh, spiritual and from Jesus and the spiritual life that He's given to us? There's real repercussions. Eternal life has real repercussions here and now. Because Jesus has invited us to daily feed on Him and abide in Him, we can have continual satisfaction. So, intimate communion, continual satisfaction, and lastly, and this is going to touch on what we're all familiar with when it comes to eternal life, eternal life consists of guaranteed resurrection. Guaranteed resurrection. So we say we, we, we shouldn't simply think of eternal life as something that is attained after death. But this does not mean that it's not also that. When Jesus came, he ushered in a foretaste of that new age. And so we benefit from that life of the age to come. We benefit from it now. But also we look forward to the day because we all recognize as much as we say we have intimate communion now, well, our intimate communion with God certainly seems meager at times. Why? Not because he's meager. Not because his provision is meager, but because we're weak. And so we're all hampered by our sin. You know that. You struggle and I struggle. Ups and downs, you have times of spiritual growth, and it seems like you have times of, of a spiritual valley. We all have those experiences. Yet there is an age to come when we'll have unfettered worship. The kingdom has come in a certain sense, but the kingdom is yet coming. However, having been granted eternal life by Jesus now guarantees that we will enter in the fullness of that life then. Look in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so you see both. You have eternal life, presence, and I will raise you up on the last day. With this resurrection comes another promise, not just the promise of future resurrection, that is, though you die, you'll live. Death has no, uh, has no sway over us, right? Though we die, we'll live. But there's another promise. When Christ returns, he will not only return with reward, but he's also going to return in judgment. The promise to believers is that since we have come to Jesus for life and we have been reconciled to the Father, when he returns, we will not face judgment. We will not face judgment. Instead, we'll receive the fullness of eternal life at his return. Look in John, but you don't get to turn there, but John 5.21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now listen, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He continues, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, 
and he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That sounds a lot like something we've already read. To come full circle all the way back to Daniel chapter 12, remember? Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Jesus says that he's come, if you hear and if you believe, you have eternal life. And an element of that eternal life is that guaranteed promise of future resurrection. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So to have eternal life, not only does it mean intimate communion and continual satisfaction, but it means guaranteed future resurrection, which means what? We're not going to face judgments but we're going to face life. We have the assurance that no matter what happens in this life, we're looking forward to resurrection in the next. I mean, that ought to have, that have all kinds of impact on how we live now, shouldn't it? Paul understood this, and so he encouraged the Corinthians this way in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's saying that promise of eternal life, guaranteed resurrection, and entering into life and not judgment enables us then to what? Face anything that's thrown at us in this life. Real, present repercussion and consequence. And so intimate communion, continual satisfaction, guaranteed resurrection. So in conclusion, how can one know for sure that they have this eternal life? How can you know for sure that you have this eternal life? Can one be sure? Absolutely. It's interesting that John, who wrote the Gospel of John and also wrote the Epistles of John, gives us the purpose for his writing, both in his Gospel and in his letter. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But he says, but these are written, this is why I wrote, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I wrote all this so that you'll know that you have life. And then in 1 John, he speaks as to why he wrote his letter. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So can you know? Yeah. That's the whole reason John wrote his gospel and his letters, so you can know. And how can you know? Well, he says there in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Now, as we close, flip back over to John 6, if you're not there, but John 6, I want you to just compare two verses, and we're going to be done with these two verses. How can we know for sure that we have eternal life? In John 6, 54... This is one of those difficult verses. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Listen, it's grotesque imagery. It is. It's difficult. That's why some wouldn't receive this from him. But understand he's using a metaphor. What does this mean? Whoever feeds on his flesh drinks his blood. What does it mean to feed on his flesh and drink his blood? Well, you realize it's defined for us right here in this text? A lot of controversy over John 6. Is this talking about the Lord's table and so on? 
He defines terms for us. Look in verse 40. Notice the comparison. Notice the, the, the similarities. For this is the will of my Father. I'm sorry, I didn't finish reading verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 54 ends, has eternal life, I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 40 ends, have eternal life, I'll raise him up on the last day. It's almost as if Jesus is giving these things purposefully to parallel because one explains the other. So what does it mean to feed on his flesh and drink his blood? Well, verse 40 defines it for us. It means to look on the Son and believe in him. That's what it means. Same consequence. If you feed on his flesh, drink his blood, you have eternal life, you'll be raised up the last day. If you look on the Son and believe in him, you'll have eternal life, you'll be raised up on the last day. There you go. How can you know for sure that you have eternal life? Look on the Son and believe. Look on the Son and believe. In doing so, you're doing what? You're feeding upon Christ. To feed is to have faith. To feed on his flesh and to drink his blood is to look upon him and believe. Well, believe what? To believe that he is the Son of God, sent by the Father, as the only source of eternal life. To believe that he is the Son of God, sent by the Father, and the only source of eternal life. is to believe that he came to give himself on the cross. He says, I've given my flesh for the life of the world. is to believe that he came to give himself on the cross so that the world might live through him. It's to believe all of this in such a way that you trust him and him alone for eternal life, and then to go on to live a life wholly dependent upon him, continually feeding and believing upon Christ, is to go on living wholly dependent upon him for your spiritual sustenance, all the while living in anticipation of the coming kingdom when we'll experience that life in fullness. Well, if you're here this morning and you're already a believer, what's our takeaway? Well, live as one who has been brought into intimate communion with God. If you're a believer this morning, what does your relationship with the Father look like? Understand that He came to usher you into intimate relationship. He gave you eternal life so that you can have communion with the Father. So how does that look practically in your life? Do you have a relationship with the Father? Live as one who has been brought into intimate communion with the Father. Live as one who's continually satisfied by Jesus. So again, practically speaking, are you a believer yet still seeking satisfaction in the things of this world, which are temporary and fleeting? Live as one who's continually satisfied with Christ and wholly dependent upon him. Live as one who has been delivered from God's wrath and promised future resurrection. Live as one who has a guaranteed place in the kingdom which is to come. So live as one who has intimate communion with the Father. Live as one who has continual satisfaction in the Son. And live as one who has a guaranteed resurrection and a place in the kingdom to come. Why? Because that's exactly what it means to possess eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for eternal life. Help us to grow in our understanding, not just of who you are and who Christ is, but to grow in our understanding of all that you've done for us through him. Help us to grow in our understanding of eternal life and how it has, how our possessing of eternal life has direct impact on our day-to-day lives here and now.
if we've been operating under the conception that eternal life is just something we gain upon death, help us to uh, have our understanding shaped by your word. To understand that the life that Jesus came to bring has direct impact in changing our quality of life now. I pray that you'd help us to live in communion with you. Help us as we pray to learn to adore you, to learn to confess our sins to you, to learn to express our thanksgiving to you, to share our needs and to cast our anxieties upon you. Uh, Help us to live in communion with you through Christ. Help us also to realize that this eternal life that we have means that we are continually drawing spiritual sustenance from Jesus. Help us to find genuine satisfaction in Him. Areas in which we struggle with sin and temptation, help us to discover what satisfaction it is we're trying to find in the world. And help us to understand how we can find that satisfaction in Jesus. And then, Lord, we pray that you'd help us, especially as we face the trials and difficulties of this life. Be reminded that we have a guaranteed resurrection ahead of us. The worst that this world can do is take our earthly life from us, but can never take our eternal life from us. So we pray that the promise of guaranteed resurrection could enable us to handle the difficulties of this present life. So in all this, we pray that you just teach us more and more to live in the eternal life that Christ has come to bring to us. And uh, again, divest us of any unbiblical notions when it comes to life. And then this morning, Lord, we pray for those who are not yet Christians, who have not yet come to Jesus for life. We pray that they would see their need as a child of Adam, suffering under that human condition of lostness. I pray that they'd see their need for life, the need for a reconciled relationship with you, and that they'd come to Christ as the only source of that life. And we pray that they go on living a life continually dependent upon Jesus for that uh, life. Lord, we thank you for all this and for your goodness to us. We thank you for all that you provided for us through Jesus. We thank you for eternal life. Amen.